I want to start with a question. I just want you to think about this with me for a second. Maybe how you would answer this. Do you believe right now uh, that the opposition uh, against Christianity, against following Jesus, is greater today now uh, than it has been at other times? Or maybe another way to say it is, is our culture as it stands right now and some of the things we hold to making it harder today than maybe it was at different times in history? And I want you to just think about that for a second. I want you to kind of hold that thought. Uh, I would just follow that up with saying there's always been opposition. There's always been uh, competing worldviews. There's always been people that are directly opposed to the things that God calls us to and what Jesus says. Uh, you see this all the way through history. You can kind of follow that through. I, I was reading this week a, a letter that maybe you've heard of this, maybe not. Uh, there was a letter in, a, I think they trace it back to about the second century in Rome, uh, it's called the letter of Diognetus, and it's a letter written to this guy named Diognetus, and it's explaining to him about who Christians are and the way that they live in the Roman Empire and why they stand out and why they're different. And it's really interesting if you read through it, if you take the time to read through it, you can find it real easy online. It's not real long, but as I've read it a few times through the years, I was kind of rereading it this week. And one of the things that stood out to me as you, re- you read it, I'm just going to give you a little excerpt. It says, as citizens... They share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. And this was explaining what Christians look like in the Roman Empire. And there's a little background that you probably need to know just from what he says there. He says, yes, they have children, but they don't destroy their offspring. And I don't know if you're aware of this. It's, it's really harsh when you stop and think about it. But within the Roman Empire, infanticide was a normal thing. That is, if, if you had a baby that you didn't want, you would discard this baby literally in the street oftentimes. Oftentimes into the sewer system, and that's the way you got rid of it. And so as you're reading this letter, what it's saying is the Christians were different. They stood out because they didn't do that. They didn't destroy their offspring. And in fact... The church began to grow in first century, second century in Rome, partly because of the way they welcomed everyone in. And they would go around and they would take these children that have been discarded and raise them as their own. But then it also says in that letter that they had a common table, but not a common bed. And so what you had was they welcomed people in and they would let welcome people into their homes despite of different class structures and maybe who was more uh, wealthy and all those kind of things that would normally divide people in the Roman Empire. So they didn't do that, and they welcomed everybody in, but they didn't share their bed. And what it was talking about is sexually there was a purity. They didn't do what the culture did in all these different ways, and they stood out as different. And it, you know what I was thinking as I read that this week is it's really not that different than the call and what we should look like as believers in our world today, right? That you don't destroy your offspring, <laughs> that we stand for life and that life begins at conception and God tells us that, or that we stand for sexual purity because God calls us to that because marriage is an image of what it looks like uh, of one one man and one woman in a committed monogamous relationship for life. And we're going to stand out from the culture in a lot of different ways. And really, when you stop to think about it, it's not really that different. (laughs) And so sometimes we think in our culture and the things that we see right in front of us, It's worse today than it was then or something like that. But the truth is it's always been that there's opposition to the truth of who God is and what he calls us to. That's always been the case. I don't know that it's worse. It may be a little different right now, but there's always been opposition. And we're going to see today as we go back into the Gospels that that opposition was even there as Jesus was walking on the earth. 
uh, as he's going and as he's teaching and as he's preaching, he's now getting a heavy kind of onslaught of people coming at him. Uh, if you've been with us last year, we were working our way through the Gospels chronologically. We are back into that now. We're really to the third year of Jesus's ministry. And what I've been saying is the banner over that third year is the year of opposition. People are standing up and, and kind of calling him out and asking questions. And they're threatened by him. The religious leaders are very threatened by him. We even talked about last week that now he's kind of operating north by the Sea of Galilee. He's not down by Jerusalem and what it says, we looked at last week in John 7, 1, that he didn't walk openly in Judea anymore because they were seeking to kill him. And so there's this serious opposition that has always been, even from Jesus's day through the first century on down to our present day. And so what I want us to think about today as we look at this passage in Matthew s- chapter 16 is that opposition that's always been there. And why is that the case? What is the spiritual component that's kind of underneath that? And what we're going to think about together and what we're going to look at together is really this idea of spiritual blindness. Why is there always spiritual blindness? Why is it always there? What is it? Where does it come from? And so that's the way I want us to think about this passage, because what we're going to see here at the beginning in Matthew chapter 16, these first four verses, is the religious leaders of the day again coming at Jesus and kind of bringing this opposition to him and they're trying to test him, it tells us. But then when we get down to the end of the passage, we're going to see Peter make this great profession of faith. And say who Jesus is. And so what's the difference? How does that happen? And so this is the way I want us to think about this passage together today. First, why there's such spiritual blindness. Secondly, how is that overcome? How is that spiritual blindness overcome? And then lastly, when we see how it's overcome, how does that truth inform how we live today? Right? So there's always been spiritual blindness. Why is that? What is it? Thinking about it. How do we overcome it? But then lastly, when we see how it's overcome, how should that inform how we live? So let's start with this idea of why such spiritual blindness and what's going on, this opposition that's there. And so just look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 16 with me. It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered them, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. And you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed, right? And so we're now in the last year of Jesus's earthly ministry. This opposition's growing. As I said last week, we're within a year of the crucifixion now. And this opposition is all kind of on top of him. Last week we saw they came to him in Matthew chapter 15, and it was more of an attack based on their rules, more theological. Your, your disciples don't wash their hands, and they're not following our rules. Here it's a little different. They come at Jesus with demanding a sign. We want to see something miraculous. And you give us this sign, and it tells you right there in verse 1, they asked to, show, uh, to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven, right? So again, it's a test. Again, they're coming at him. They're trying to disprove Jesus. They're trying to lead people away from him. But Jesus is pretty curt with them. He's pretty direct. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Actually, in verse 4, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do this for you now. I'm not, I'm not kind of jumping when you say to. That's not the way this is going to work. And he tells him he's not going to do that. 
except for the sign of Jonah. Now, if you go back in Matthew, Jesus has talked about this before. Actually, in Matthew chapter 12, he says something very similar, but he kind of explains himself a little bit in Matthew chapter 12. He says the same thing about the sign of Jonah. And he says in the same way, if you know the story of Jonah, swallowed by the whale, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be. And he's talking about his death and his resurrection. And that's what he's saying to them here. No sign's going to be given to you except for the resurrection. And so he says, I'm not doing that. And he leaves. He takes off. And he says, I'm not doing that. And so here's the thing, though, I want us to consider. Is here's these religious leaders of the day that know the Bible and know these things. And they keep coming at them. Why are they so missing it? Why are they so missing what Jesus is saying and who he is and what he's doing why at every turn are they coming at him? And I think part of it, when we start to think about this idea, or not part of it, when we start to think about the spiritual blindness, what is underneath that and why that is the case is because of our sinfulness. And the Bible says this all the way through. And in our sin, if we start to think of this big picture, our sin nature is we've turned to be very self-centered. Right? If we go back to the very beginning and what God tells us, it tells us that we're made in God's image, the fundamental truth of who we are is to know and to love God and then to love people. But as God creates us in his image, he gives us the ability to have real relationships with real choices and real consequences. And so when he makes man and he puts him on this earth and he sets him there, he tells us that this life will work best, that things will go better if we center on God, loving God and loving people, and living with God, and trusting him, but he gives us real choices. And so at the very beginning, man makes the choice that I don't need you to define things for me. I can do it for myself. And so sin enters the world. And as sin enters the world, we go from seeing this wide-angle view of the glory of who God is and what he's created us for to it shrinks down to be all about me. And I exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creation, the smaller things, the finite things over the creator. And so what happens for all of us in the sinfulness of our heart and our sin nature is it comes into our life. And as we make those real choices, as we rebel against God, we become inwardly focused. We become about me and what I think and what I like and what I want instead of who God is. And it leads me away from loving God and loving other people. And it makes me more self-centered. And it's so easy for all of us. And we all slip into that. And so I want you to think about that with the terms of what's happening here. Jesus, the God of the universe, comes down and walks on earth. And the glory of him is in front of these people. Quite literally, an otherworldly teacher. The exact imprint of who God is is standing before them. And I'd say to you, that's indisputable. It, maybe you say, well, I don't know about Jesus being God, but indisputable in the sense of the amazing nature of Jesus' teaching. Right? If you go and you read in John chapter 3, we looked at this way last year. Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, comes to Jesus at night. And he's kind of like, doesn't want anybody to know he's there. But he comes to Jesus and he asks a question. He goes, he's kind of asking, who are you? And what he says to him is very telling because he says, you are saying and doing things that we don't have a category for. You have to be from God, right? That's what Nicodemus even says. He confesses. And here it is right in front of these guys, these religious leaders that you have Jesus, this otherworldly teacher. 
amazing wisdom and discernment and kindness and depth and nuance and clarity. And then you add to it, he's doing these miraculous works. This is an amazing thing standing right in front of him. But yet, instead of having the humility of someone like Nicodemus to come and go, teach me, explain to me, what do they do? Perform a sign for us. Prove to us, show us. And you stop and think about what's behind that. There is a rampant self-centeredness. There is an arrogance that you answer to us and you tell us. Here's this guy that clearly there is something going on here that is hard to explain. If you struggle with even believing that, just read through the Gospels. I heard somebody say this once, and I thought it was a good point. Read through the Gospels and think about all the sayings and all the things that Jesus teaches us. All the things he says. The wisdom with which he speaks. And then try to come up with one saying that has the depth of any of the things that Jesus says. Just one thing. One unique idea that has the depth of what Jesus says. And suddenly you see how hard it is. How impossible that is. But yet everything he says is that way. And so here he is standing in front of him. And the only thing that they can think to do is demand signs. And you answer to us. And I think if you stop and think about it, we do this at different times. We do the same thing. It's easy for us to be self-centered. It's very easy for each one of us to be quick to speak and slow to listen. I'll point the finger at me. (laughs) I remember very vividly a long time ago, this conversation stands out in my mind. I think I was at one of Asher's soccer games when he was a little boy. He was probably four or five years old. So that means Jed was about two or three at the time. And I was playing with Jed and Asher was playing soccer. And this lady said something about the way we, the toy we were playing with or something. And I had taken some classes when I was in seminary on learning styles and early childhood development. Like when I say classes, I probably took two that, that, that touched on that. And so I knew a little bit about, and she said something about the importance of play. And so I started to tell her what I learned. And I was like, yes, and it helps them and, you know, spatial awareness. And I'm saying all these things. And I just kind of go on saying all this stuff. And finally I said, oh, well, you know, forgive me. I said, who, you know, tell me who you are and what you do. And she says, well, I have a PhD in early childhood development and I'm a specialist. (laughs) I went, oh, (laughs) and I quickly went, well, I'm sorry. I just told you a bunch of things that you already know way better than I do. But it's that kind of, we become so inwardly focused. I want to tell you what I know. I want to share with you what I know and what I'm thinking and the way I am that we don't even stop to ask. Oftentimes, And I don't mean that it's you walk around thinking you're smarter than everyone else or you have to tell everybody how things are. But our natural tendency is to be so self-absorbed that it's what I think and what I feel and my experience and what I'm thinking on all things. I remember years ago uh, seeing a a, a picture and and it stuck in my mind because I used to like to draw and I drew this picture a long time ago. If you know who M.C. Escher is, he's a famous artist, uh, graphic artist. And uh, he did this um, self-portrait, and it's a picture of a hand holding a globe. Maybe you've seen this picture. And he's really cool with, like, uh, perspectives. And so it's a globe, and it's a reflection of him. And so you see this hand holding the globe, but then in the globe is his reflection. And it stuck in my mind because I took the time to draw that. And, but I remember when I drew it in my sketchbook writing a quote from M.C. Escher on the bottom. 
And I'm paraphrasing here. I couldn't find the quote exactly, but it's, it's something to the effect of this. He said, no matter how you twist and turn yourself, you're always the unshakable center of your own world. And what he was saying is that you literally experience the world from your own two eyes. You're always in this body that you've been given, and that's the way you see things, right? And, and he's right in, in a very real, physical way. That's true. But what happens is our sin nature is we begin to believe that's true about everything. That the world revolves around me. That I'm the most important thing. And I know And I have these thoughts and my feelings and my thoughts and my things are the most important. And I understand it. And we all go through this. And we all struggle with that. And it's the underlying part of our sin nature. But it's also what leads us to a spiritual blindness. To begin to think that we're the center of the world. And it's about me and the way I see things. And so you start to think about, well, how does that play out and what does that look like? And I think it's what you see here. These guys coming to Jesus and he's saying these incredible things, right? You see this all the way through the gospels. Jesus didn't teach as the scribes and Pharisees did, but he taught as one with authority. And he was saying things and doing things in a way that no one had ever seen. But what do they do? They come up to him and they say, you answer us. And that's what happens in our sinfulness. We turn to God and say, God, you answer to me. And that's the the outworking of our own selfishness, of our own self-centeredness. I remember years ago seeing an interview with uh, the actor Robert De Niro. You know who Robert De Niro is? Very famous actor, been in tons of movies. And they asked Robert De Niro what he thought about God, or did he believe in God, or did he think there was a God? And his answer went something like this. He said, well, if there is a God... And I meet him and I get there. He's going to have a lot of explaining to do. And I heard that went, whoa, it's a pretty brash statement. Or maybe another way to say the same thing. I remember reading that after World War II, when the concentration camps were cleared out and they'd been shut down, that they found written on the wall inside of one of the concentration camps that said, if there is a God, he will have to beg for my forgiveness. And I want you to think about what's behind both of those. And and I'm not making light of that. Not not even putting down Robert De Niro or the person that wrote that. They're wrestling with a big idea. Evil and suffering in the world. And how does that coincide with an all-knowing, all-powerful God? And there's real evil and there's real hardship. But what happens in that, because of our sin nature, we take the approach that God answers to us. But what I think that misses is what the Bible teaches us about evil and suffering in the world and the things that we see around us. What it's missing is the reason that it's there is because we've turned our backs on God, because we've ignored God and the world he's created. And so when you get really angry and you shake your fist and you say, God has to answer to me on this, right? If there is a God, he's got a lot of explaining to do. And he's going to tell me if we start to take that approach, we're missing a huge piece here. We're now putting, we're inverting it. God answers to me. Or the way that often goes in that argument is we go, he has a lot of explaining to do or he just doesn't exist. And that's what a lot of people do. But that doesn't actually work either. C.S. Lewis famously, if you know C.S. Lewis, became one of the great Christian apologists. 
But his story of coming to faith, from being an atheist to coming to faith, was he said, was because of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. He said, at first I was so angry at God because of what I saw in the world and the evil and suffering that was there, this evil and an injustice. But then he said, I finally came to how had I gotten the idea of injustice? Why was I upset? Right? If you think this through, if you shake your fist at God and you say, you answer to me, why are you upset if there's no God? Right? If there's no God, then we're here by random chance. We're the products of survival of the fittest, right? which is crushing violence down through the ages. And then when we see violence and harshness in those things and we shake our fists and say it shouldn't be that way, well, why is that? Well, if you remove God, you don't have a good answer for it. And that's what C.S. Lewis came to. But the importance there is you just think about all of that and how it comes together is that you have this choice of God must answer to me or I answer to God. And if God's the creator and sustainer of all things, then I've inverted it if I'm now shaking my fists and say, you answer to me. But that's what you have here if you really stop and think about it in this episode. These religious leaders come to Jesus and they demand a sign. And their spiritual blindness, because they're so self-centered and because they're so ingrained in their thinking of the way things are, and this is the way it must be, so you answer to us, they're missing God standing right in front of them. So spiritual blindness from our sinful self-nature, right? Our selfishness leads us to make the critical error that God answers to us. So what's the answer? How do you get outside of that? How do you break through that? We see that all around us and it's all the time you hear people say that. Maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you're wrestling with it right now. How do you get freed from that spiritual blindness? And so if you look at this, it says in verse uh, 5, when the disciples, actually verse 4, so he says this to them and then it says, so he left and departed. He says, I'm not giving you a sign. And Jesus says, we're out. Let's go. (laughs) They go and it says they get in a boat. They're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In verses 5 through 12, he has a discussion with his disciples. And he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And as they often do, they make it very literal. They start talking about bread, and we forgot bread, and how are we going to, you know. And he goes, stop. It's, kind of, it's almost comical at this point, because Jesus does this over and over. And he's always talking about something deeper, and his disciples always take him real literally. But you get to verse 12, and he tells them, There it says that they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? So he leaves and he goes, he's telling them, we start to think of how you come out of the spiritual blindness to beware of the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which was what? One, they're very arrogant. They're very self-centered. Most of what they're doing is kind of revolves around keeping rules doing them in a certain way. We saw that last week. Your disciples don't wash the hands and keep our rules in the way they're supposed to. And they make it all about what they do and keeping these rules and doing these things. But that's kind of the opposite of everything Jesus says on how you enter into his kingdom. If you remember last year, we looked at the the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus say right at the beginning? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit is this humility of understanding that you're in need. And they're completely missing that. And I think part of what Jesus is saying here is beware of their teaching because it is so arrogant and it is so self-centered and it is so about your doing that you're missing your need. Now, 
I'm glossing over that center section because I really want us to focus on what happens here in 13 through 20, right? So they get out to the other side. They get out of this boat. It says, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So he's asking them, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? They're demanding signs, and they're asking these things. Who do you say? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Actually, if you you put that in today's English in the South, he says, who do y'all say I am? Right? It's plural there. Who do you guys, who do you say I am? If you grew up in the Northeast like I did, you say, who do you guys say I am? But that's what he's asking them. Who do you guys say I am? And then Peter, as always, kind of speaks up first. That's kind of what Peter does. He jumps in. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so here's what I want you to see as you read that. He asked them all. Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the one that we've been waiting for. Right. The, the language and what he's using and what he's saying here when he talks about Jesus as being the Messiah, he's talking about the one that's been long promised. And he says, we believe that you're him. But then how does he know that? What does Jesus say to him? He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven. And so you start to think about that. And that's what the Bible says over and over and over again. How do you see the fullness of who God is? How do you see who Jesus is? And what Jesus says to Peter is not unique to just this portion of the Bible. It's all the way through. Our default in our spiritual blindness and our self-centeredness, that the only way that we see who God is, is that God breaks in by his grace and opens our eyes. We're spiritually blind and it takes God opening our eyes to be able to see. And not just spiritually blind. Because if you read through the fullness of the Bible, it's not just blindness. Actually, in Ephesians 2, it says you were dead. That it's spiritual death. Right? Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so how do you overcome spiritual blindness? The answer is you don't, but God does by his grace working in your life, opening your eyes to see Jesus. And when he opens your eyes to see Jesus and you see who he is, you say what Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And the father is the one that shown this to you. It wasn't your intellect, wasn't your flesh and blood. It wasn't these things, but it was God moving in your life to show you this. Now, what does that practically look like? Say it's God's doing. God has to do it. He's the one that's at work. I often say when you read Ephesians 2, what can a dead man do? It's not a trick question. Nothing. It takes God bringing you from death to life. And so practically, what do we do with that? Sometimes in the sinfulness of our flesh, we read that and we come to that understanding in the Bible and we go, well, God's got to do it, so I don't have to do anything. Is that being faithful to what scripture calls us to? No. 
It's oftentimes referred to hyper-Calvinism, if you've ever heard that before. Calvinism, I think, rightly says, just a way to summarize things, that God is sovereign in our salvation. But then if you take that to say, so you don't do anything because God does it all and you're not have, you have no part in that, I'm just going to sit back. That's hyper-Calvinism and you're now in error. Because God tells you that he works through means, that he works through people, that we're called to proclaim the gospel. We're called to go and to tell. And so what do you do if someone's really struggling with who Jesus is? Do you say, well, God has to reveal that to you. Good luck. Right? It's the work of the Lord. Hopefully he'll do that. See you later. No. It's not what you do. So what does it practically look like? I think we get a really good idea and actually in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison, right? Remember John the Baptist? He came before Jesus. He's proclaiming who Jesus is. And he, gets thro- he ends up getting thrown in jail. And John, like Jesus' disciples and pretty much everybody else at this time, they thought the Messiah was going to come and lead a revolution. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up his kingdom here and now. And they're like, yes, let's go. We're ready for this. And now all of a sudden, John's in prison. And he's kind of having a crisis of faith there. And he sends a message to Jesus. He gets his disciples and he says, go ask Jesus. He says, ask Jesus if he's the one to come or we should wait for somebody else. Right? John's like, are you sure that you're the Messiah? Because, you know, I'm sitting in jail here. <laughs> are you sure you're the guy? And do you know what Jesus says to him? Right? He answers John's disciples and he says, go tell John. Do you know what he says to him? He says, go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. If coming to faith is a work of God, and it is, it's God's doing to reveal, why does Jesus say, go tell John what I'm preaching and what you see me doing and the power in which I'm doing it? Because God works to open our eyes to see Jesus and magnify him. And what we're called to do is to continue to point to who Jesus is. And that's where God works. And that's where the spirit comes. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we proclaim Jesus and the spirit comes and opens people's eyes to see it. That's the means in which God tells us to do this. He's the one that's going to open your eyes to see it. And that puts us in a place of complete dependence on him, knowing we can't do it. But that doesn't mean we don't continue to extol who Jesus is. And that's what he tells us to do. People will have doubts and they're unsure and they're struggling with it. And so what do you do? Take them to Jesus. I say this, and I mean, the best way I can say it is Jesus is objectively, and I mean that, objectively the greatest thing there is and i'd even say that to if you're struggling with who jesus is i say that to my friends that are not believers i think jesus is the greatest thing that's ever been and come prove me wrong let's look at what he says and what he did and what he taught and the way he changed all of history no one's reaches further no one's reach is greater 
No one has ever done what he has done. An uneducated carpenter from the middle of the Middle East that never writes anything down and he changes the entire course of history. I heard a guy once say, not a believer, wrestling with who Jesus is. And he said, I think Jesus is the Logos. And he knew what that means. He knows what the Greek means, the divine truth. And he said, I think he's the Logos because he propelled evolution forward by thousands of years. And I have no explanation for that. Even if you're not sure what the Bible says, Jesus is objectively the most beautiful thing there is. And invite people in to come and see that. That's why when we talk about evangelism, talk about reading the gospel of John with people. Would you come read this with me? Come try to prove me wrong on who Jesus is. Right? John says at the end of his gospel, I've written this that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Come and see. Come and see who Jesus is. And as you begin to do that, God reveals and he shows and he opens people's eyes. And we know we can't do that and it's not in us, but that's the way in which God often works. And so let us continue to point to who Jesus is. So how should that inform the way we live? The spiritual blindness is lifted by God's doing, but we're called to soul who he is. What does that mean about how we should live? Look at these last few verses with me. Just a couple of things here. Verse 18. So Peter makes this profession. Jesus says, it's not your flesh and blood, but the father who is in heaven. And then he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall get, I can't speak. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Take that last part first. I just told you to tell people who Jesus is and then Jesus says, make sure you don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. You go, I think your point's missing what he's saying, right? This is where context is important when we read the Bible. This is a specific time and a specific place. And what he says there in verse 20 is to his disciples at that moment. And there's a very clear reason why when you read through the Gospels. As I just mentioned, they all think Jesus is going to be a conquering king. And he's going to overthrow Rome. And that's their conception of the Messiah. And they've just said, we believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am. And God has revealed that to you. And that's true. But don't tell anybody. Because he knows what will happen as they go and they start to say that is an army will begin to assemble around him and they'll go, let's go. We're overthrowing the government. And he knows that's the case. So he keeps going, no. It's also why with what's swirling around him and what they're understanding that Jesus starts to say to the disciples over and over, oh, by the way, I'm going to die. Right around this time, he starts to say it to them a lot. And they all just, it it goes right over their head every time. They're all like, whatever, (laughs) right? They all miss that. Well, actually, look at this. Peter will actually turn and say, no, you're not. Right. And so that's why he's saying to them, not don't go say it. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations and proclaim the good news. And we are called to do that. And so today our call is different than what he says to them at this moment in this time. So don't let that throw you. But then look at what he does say here and how it informs how we should live today. He says, I tell you, 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the first thing I want you to consider of how we live in light of this is first and foremost that you see that faith, saving faith, continuing in faith, the prevailing of what Jesus is doing is going to happen because Jesus builds his church. He says, I will build my church. I'm going to do this. And it is a certainty because of who Jesus is. And so I want that just to stand over everything we think when we see the world and you go, well, it's worse today and there's a spiritual blindness and there's all these things happening and Jesus goes, no, 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 I will build my church. And we can trust in that even now. And even as culture goes in different ways and even if our country gets far worse, we still stand on Jesus will build his church. That is always true. That is always the case and we can trust in that. But then look at what he says here to Peter and how should we take that, right? Peter makes this profession. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. It's one of those hotly contested passages for a long, long time. Is he saying that he's going to build his church on Peter? Is that what he's talking about here? Is Peter now the first pope? And he's been, right, God said to him and bestowed on him, you're now in charge and you're the guy. Is that what he's talking about here? And I don't think it is. I don't think that's what he's saying. Peter has just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, God revealed that to you and I'm going to build my church. And I think it's talking about Peter's confession and what he's saying about who Jesus is. Right. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter one. I am not ashamed of what does he say? I'm not ashamed of Peter because he's the power of God for salvation. No, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Right? Peter's proclamation that you're the Christ, you're the living God, you're it. And Paul says that's the power of God for salvation, the good news of who God is and what he's done. And I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is your confession of who I am. I'm going to build my church on this. Now, that doesn't mean that Peter's not part of that. Right? God's going to use the means of people proclaiming the gospel down through history. And Peter was certainly part of that, just as you and I are. It's his disciples. But the heart of what he's saying is it's going to be built on this confession of who God is, the good news of the gospel and what's taking place here. Then you say, well, what does verse 19 mean then? I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Tell you what I don't think it means. All the horrible cartoons that you see where Peter's manning the gates at heaven. Ever seen that? Ever seen a cartoon like that? You walk up and Peter's checking the gate and he's in charge and who gets in and who doesn't. Yeah, that's blasphemy. (laughs) That's not true. It's heresy. So what is he talking about when he says that I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom? With the gospel spreads by the proclamation of the good news of who God is and what he's done, because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. What is he talking about? It's not binding by fallible men making decisions on who's in and who's out, but as the gospel is proclaimed, it's either rejected and it alienates and excludes those that reject Jesus. And conversely, when the gospel is proclaimed and those put their faith in Jesus and they accept it, they now are brought into God's glory. Right? And so as he's saying, you go and you proclaim and you say these things. 
And as the gospel goes out, it's either rejected or it's accepted. And that's what the Bible says all the way through. The power of God for salvation. Right? It's, it's even what Peter says. Right? You get to the beginning of Acts. He says, there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. And he boldly proclaims. And people either reject or accept and they come into the kingdom. And so what do we do with that? If that's the practical outworking, what do we do with that in our life? You put your faith in the gospel and what God has done and who he is in Jesus. You rest on that that's the way spiritual blindness is conquered. That we boldly proclaim the gospel. And we do it with our lives and our words and we speak the truth and we do it with great grace and humility and we continue to point to Jesus and God opens people's eyes and he brings them into the kingdom. And it's all his doing. And we get to be part of it. But do you see how wonderful that is that it's all his doing? That he's going to build his church? That we just cling to him in faith and he's going to do it? I don't know about you. <laughs> confession as a pastor i go to bed resting in that idea because i wouldn't be able to do this any other way it has to be him doing it so trust him in that in everything would you pray with me god we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you are the one that is at work that you are the one opening eyes we thank you that you invite us in to be part of what you're doing, that you choose to work through the means of people that you've called to yourself. And we thank you that you allow us to be part of that. I pray that we'd see afresh today that you are at work all around us and in all things and that you invite us in to be part of that. I pray that you would remind us that it's your doing, that you would encourage us with the truth of who you are and the ways that you're moving, that we have the words of life because of what you've done in and through us and what Jesus has done for us. Help us to continue to put our faith fully in you and in all ways and in all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.